Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we are in week 3 of our sermon series going through the Beatitudes of Jesus. Let's just do a very quick recap and summary of where we've been so far. So the Beatitudes, they are a description of a blessed life in the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are the sermon intro for Jesus for the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. We saw in the first week that blessed are those who are poor in spirit, that is living with a humble dependence upon the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn, that is those who mourn over their own sin and mourn over the brokenness of the world and they receive the comfort that comes through God's grace. Blessed are those who are meek, that is those who are gentle and their power is under control for the good of others and the glory of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. That is their greatest desire is to honor God with their life, to pursue a life of holiness. This morning, we're going to look at the next two Beatitudes in verses 7 and 8. And we're going to start by talking about what it means to be merciful. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And as I was reflecting on this concept of showing mercy to other people, my mind went to the incredible story of Corey Ten Boom. Anyone else familiar with Corey? Her incredible story, the famous book, The Hiding Place. And so a lot of you guys might know uh, that she was arrested for hiding Jews in her home during World War II, and she was brought to a concentration camp. And years later, she tells the story of after the war was over and after she was set free, she had come face to face with one of the guards from the camp that she was in, in a church. And after the service, this guard came up to her and he said, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for my sins, but he reached out his hand and he says, I'm asking now if you will forgive me. And these are Corey's words. She said, and I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives is a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. 
the current started to my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. With all my heart, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. There is an incredible blessing that comes through mercy that we would know no other way. But in our sin, in our fallenness, in a broken world, is there anything more difficult than that? Is there anything more counterintuitive to us than that? When we have been sinned against, we have been wounded, we have been hurt by the sins of other people, is there anything more difficult than what she did? Corey models for us, and Jesus is going to teach us this morning, the incredible power and blessedness of mercy. So this morning, here's the main point. We are blessed when we are merciful and pure in heart. That is where the blessed life comes from, a heart of mercy and purity. So let's read these verses together. We'll pray and then we'll jump in. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Oh Lord, your mercy toward us in Christ is beyond anything we could ever imagine. Lord, that sinners like us, that we have rebelled against the holy God of the universe, the infinitely holy God, deserving only your wrath, only your judgment. Yet you have lavished us, Lord. You are rich in mercy. You have made us alive together with Christ. Lord, I pray that because of the mercy that we have been shown in Christ, you would empower us to show mercy to others. Oh, Lord, would you purify our hearts this morning, Lord? purify our hearts so that we can see you more clearly and enjoy you more fully. Lord, help us to have a life that is truly blessed, a life characterized by mercy and purity. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. So let's start with some definitions here. What is mercy? Well, this is the definition I'm giving you this morning. Mercy is compassion in action. It's compassion in action. It is a heart of compassion and pity that reaches out to others and it leads to action on their behalf. In scripture, mercy is often showed toward those who are in some form of distress. And we also see that mercy is essential to the character of God. So when Moses asks to see God's glory in the book of Exodus, God describes himself as merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 2 Corinthians, Paul names God. He's the father of mercies, the, the one who loves to show mercy. Another way that might be helpful for us to understand what the concept of mercy is might be in distinguishing it from other things. So what is the difference between justice, mercy, and grace? Let's start with justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. It's an eye for an eye, it's a tooth for a tooth. You committed the crime, you pay the penalty. That's justice. Mercy is not getting what you deserve from a place of compassion, from a place of pity. It is you are not getting what you deserve, and grace builds on that. Grace is not only you don't get what you deserve, it's you get better than what you deserve. So if mercy is God saying, I am forgiving you for your sins, grace is him saying, I'm adopting you into my family. 
I'm giving you eternal life. That's grace. And so this morning, we're going to talk about mercy. Mercy is compassion in action. And I even think we can distinguish it a little farther. When mercy is directed toward the sin of others, we call that forgiveness. When mercy is directed towards the suffering of others, we could call that acts of mercy or compassion or mercy ministry. There's a lot of different things you'd call it, but I want to look at each of those. So first of all, let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is mercy shown to others in response to their sin. So let's define it. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a promise. At heart, that's what it is. It is a promise. And when I forgive someone, when I say, I forgive you, I am promising to no longer hold that offense against you. Let's look at a few truths about forgiveness from the scriptures to help us understand this idea a little bit better. First of all, first and foremost, forgiveness is grounded in the gospel. Forgiveness is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Does anyone know the end of the verse? Or it's up there, so you should, if you can read. Um, As God in Christ forgave you. That's why we forgive one another. It's not just, hey, forgive one another, end of sentence. As God in Christ forgave you. The forgiveness that we have in Christ is the basis for our forgiving other people. We have to understand how much we've been forgiven before we will ever be able to forgive. Let me put it this way. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Here's why. When I understand how much I have been forgiven of my sins by a holy God, it softens my heart toward others. And I can look at them and say, yes, you have sinned against me. You have hurt me. But if God has forgiven me for my sins, then I can forgive you. And what did God have to do in order to forgive us? He sent his son into this world, Jesus Christ. He's son of God and son of man. He died on the cross in our place, paying for our sins. He rose from the dead three days later. When we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ, we are forgiven completely, eternally. Every sin, past, present, and future, we are forgiven. So the forgiveness that we show others is grounded in the gospel. But next, forgiveness glorifies God by reflecting his character. Forgiveness glorifies God by reflecting his character. We've already seen that our God is a merciful God. Our God is a forgiving God. When we forgive, when we have been hurt, we have an opportunity to glorify God. We have an opportunity to reflect God's character in the world, to show people what our God is like. And lastly, and this is really important for us this morning, forgiveness brings freedom. Forgiveness brings freedom. Man, if you have ever held a grudge before, and I know I have, you ever held a grudge before? You've ever harbored anger or bitterness or hatred or rage in your heart before? You know who that hurts more than anyone else? You. You guys have probably heard the old saying before. Bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping it kills them. Right? We can stew about it in our hearts and be consumed with rage and anger and bitterness. And they're probably just living their life. We are the ones consumed. I read this quote this week from Lewis Smedes. He said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. Don't stay, if that's you this morning, don't stay imprisoned of a prison of your own making, of your own bitterness, of your own anger. It makes you miserable. I mean, very pragmatically, blessed are the merciful. Some translations even say happy. You will be happier in life if you learn how to forgive. Forgive. 
if you learn how to show mercy. Forgiveness brings freedom. So if those are a few truths about forgiveness, I also think it might be helpful for us as we're talking about this concept to clear up a few myths about forgiveness. Let's talk now about a few myths about forgiveness. These are things that I think make it harder for us to forgive unnecessarily because of a misunderstanding. Here's one. And, you know, we all probably said these. I've said these. uh, But I think that there's a better way to put it biblically. So first of all, I need to forgive and forget. Please show me a Bible verse that says that. Right. We're never called to forgive and forget. First of all, good luck with that. Let me know how that goes. Uh, if you can make yourself forget. And second of all, it puts an unnecessary pressure on ourselves. Some people, I think they've been hurt by someone and they forgive them, but they still feel those difficult feelings of anger and struggle. And they think, well, I haven't forgotten about it. So I must have not forgiven them. Remember what Corey said in the intro, right? Forgiveness is an act of the will, not the emotions. And if I were to keep reading, she goes on in this story to say, hey, for weeks after this, I struggled. It's not as if it was happily after 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 that handshake. She still struggled, but yet she made the choice to forgive. I mean, think about it. The Lord says, yes, I remember their sins no more, but God's also omniscient. I think what that means is that God chooses not to call them to mind against us in order to judge us for our sins. So don't put that pressure on yourself of I have to forgive and forget. Here's one that I hear more and more commonly today. I need to forgive myself before I can forgive other people. Here's another one. You know, I'd love to see a Bible verse for that. Uh, But second, listen, your sin was not against yourself. Your sin was against God. Therefore, you don't need to forgive yourself. You need to receive God's forgiveness. And often we say things like, I need to forgive myself because of feelings of regret and shame. And I understand that. But listen, with feelings of regret and shame, We don't need self-forgiveness. We need a bloody cross. We need to receive God's forgiveness, have a deeper understanding of the gospel, of the length to which God went that we might be forgiven. Final myth about forgiveness. If I forgive them, they'll keep sinning. If I let them off the hook, they'll keep doing it. Here's the problem with that one. It's not your job to change them. It's God's job to change them. It's your job to obey God. And God says, forgive. I mean, to think about this logic. If I forgive them, they'll keep on sinning. Okay, so you're trying to sanctify them with your bitterness? Let me know how that works out for you. Listen, we forgive and then we leave them in God's hands. They will answer to God one day for what they've done. God can do a lot more than we can. Okay, so we forgive and then we leave them in God's hands. Those are a few myths about forgiveness. And so now that we have a better understanding of what it means to forgive, let's get to the how. How do we forgive? Because listen, every person on this planet is two things at the same time. We're all sinners and we're all sufferers. We're all sinners, which means we've sinned against other people. We're all sufferers, which means we have suffered the sin of other people. We have all been hurt by other people. So every person in this room at different points in life, probably every day, We sin against others and we are sinned against. So we need to understand this process. What does it look like to forgive in action? First of all, first step, remember the gospel. I'm going to keep coming back to that point. Remember the gospel. Remember how much you have been forgiven by Jesus. That is what softens your heart and enables you to forgive others. But next, 
prayerfully surrender the offense to the Lord. I was reading this week about how forgiveness has both a vertical and a horizontal dimension. The, hor- the vertical dimension is when I surrender the offense to the Lord. I go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, I am hurt by this, but I'm surrendering this hurt to you. I am forgiving this person in my heart before you. I'm releasing this offense to you, Lord. I'm trusting you here. And then next step, horizontal piece, extend the promise of forgiveness to the person who hurt you. This is Matthew 18 stuff, right? If your brother sins against you, what do you do about it? You go, you go and tell them your fault and you try to work things out. We extend the promise of forgiveness to the person who sinned against us. And then final step, be willing to take appropriate steps towards reconciliation. Now, and here's the key, forgiveness is an event. It is a promise. Reconciliation is a process. And depending on the gravity of the offense, that can take a long time. And there, even in some circumstances, where there's, especially if it's a criminal situation or whatever, there are appropriate boundaries that can and should be put into place. But with that said, with forgiveness comes at least a willingness to work toward reconciliation. I forgive and I take the steps necessary to restore the trust that has been broken and the relationship that has been hurt by the sin. So with all of this said, for many of us in this room, there's probably a face in your mind right now. There's probably a name in your mind right now. Let me ask, who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to ask forgiveness from? You know, Jesus says, if you've got your brother or something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. I'm not saying you got to like leave your Bible here and like run out the door right now. What I am saying is don't put it off. If there is something that is not right in a relationship in your life, don't put it off. Deal with it this week. Don't put it off and let bitterness continue to fester in your heart. Don't put it off, but make it right. Because this will transform all of our relationships. What about your friendships? Listen, every person in this world is a sinner. So if you have a friend, you're going to have a sinner friend. And your sinner friend is going to sin against you at some point. And if we don't learn how to forgive, we won't have many friends. We'll have many lasting friendships. And what I just said is like doubly and triply true for marriage. Let me tell you something. You're married to a sinner if you're married. It's true. They are going to hurt you. And you are going to hurt them. And your marriage will not last if it is not composed of two good repenters and forgivers. I can't think of a faster way to wreck your marriage than to keep a record of wrongs. You've got to learn how to forgive. You've got to be quick to confess and repent when you sin and quick to extend forgiveness. Lastly, what about the church? Let me make you this promise, especially you guys thinking about coming to Weir Coastal on Saturday. Um, We're not perfect. And this whole church is made up of sinners. So I can make you a promise. If you're here long enough, you'll get hurt. That's like a great sales pitch for the church, isn't it? Like if you're here long enough, you'll get hurt. Why? Because we're sinners. Because we're messed up. And here's the deal. When we sin against each other, what are we going to do about it? What we often do is we think the grass is greener. We run down to the church down the street. And then that cycle repeats every two or three years. But what if it honored God more if we learned how to do Matthew 18, how to love each other enough to hold each other accountable, to confess our sins, to forgive one another, and to walk in reconciliation and restoration? That's the kind of church body I want to be a part of. 
I labored this point for a long time this morning because I think it's so important. Guys, I don't think there's any more clearly defining trait of a Christian than a person who is willing to forgive when they've been hurt. There is no greater demonstration of the gospel than what we saw modeled by Corey in the beginning of this sermon, a willingness to forgive. And let me tell you, last thought here, there is nothing more countercultural in our culture today than people who are willing to forgive. Have you noticed how legalistic our culture has become? Our culture hates forgiveness. We live in a culture that says, I'm going to dig up something you tweeted when you were a 17-year-old idiot and then ruin the rest of your life on that basis. But what if as the church, we modeled what it looked like to be a community of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, of being able to look and say, your past sin is not a threat. It's a testimony to the grace of God. That if Jesus can change you, he can change me too. Forgiveness will be a testimony to the world of the power of the gospel in our lives. So the next response of mercy is acts of mercy. So if forgiveness is mercy directed towards sin, I'm calling acts of mercy, mercy directed toward suffering, where it's not because of their sin, it's because of the brokenness of the world where a person is suffering. This is a spiritual gift for some. Romans 12, 8 talks about acts of mercy, but it's a responsibility for all of us, even if you don't have that gift, to show mercy to those who are suffering. A good example of this is the Good Samaritan. You guys know this parable where you have the guy who got beat up on the road to Jericho and left for dead on the side of the road. You got a priest, he comes by. Eh. You got a Levite who comes by, not going to do nothing about it. The Samaritan ends up being a good guy of the story. Jesus did that just to kind of elbow his audience in the ribs because they didn't like the Samaritans very much. So the Samaritan binds up his wounds. He takes him to a hotel. He pays for it and he goes. Then Jesus asked the question, who was a neighbor to this guy? Luke 10, 37. He said... The one who showed him what? Mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, think about it for a minute. Did the man who got beat up on the way to Jericho sin? Is that why he was there? No, right? He's just walking down the road to Jericho. But it was mercy toward him. It was an act of mercy to meet his needs in his suffering, to show compassion to him and let that compassion lead to action. So we're calling this meeting the physical and emotional needs of others. But let's be real. And I'll put myself at the top of this list. We struggle in this area. We struggle to show mercy to those who are suffering. And let me give you a few reasons why we often struggle to show mercy to those who are suffering. First of all, because we have a tendency to be judgmental. When we see someone who's suffering, oftentimes our first thought is, well, they must have done something to deserve it. Surely they did something stupid and that led to them being in this situation. So they don't deserve my help. What about greed? I have stuff and I could help meet this need, but if I help meet that need, I'll have less stuff. And I love my stuff. I love my money. So I can't help. Then probably our favorite one is apathy. Yes, I see this need, but someone else will do it. You know, the church can help with that. A pastor can help with that. Like somebody else can help with that. That's probably what the priest and Levite thought. You know, somebody else will help with that. It's fine. We ought to repent of these heart postures, judgmentalism and greed and apathy, but instead we should be open-hearted and open-handed toward the need of others. When we see someone in distress, someone suffering, we should reach out to them with the compassion of Jesus. I mentioned earlier, it's about emotional and physical needs. What does it mean to meet emotional needs? It means Romans 12, 15, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice 
and weep with those who weep. We can call this a ministry of presence. When someone is suffering, sometimes the best thing you can do is just be there and love them and cry with them. You often think, well, Pastor Nate, I don't know what to say. Good, you shouldn't say anything. Job's friends were doing great till they started talking. Like we go and we weep and we rejoice and we, we love on them. We are just being there. And I've been in pastoral situations where someone is going through a tragedy and we don't say a word. We just go and we sit and we cry and we pray and we leave. And later we find out that meant so much to me. I didn't say anything. I didn't preach a sermon. didn't do anything. Didn't pull out the guitar and play a song. Didn't do anything besides be there. Exactly. Sometimes that's an act of mercy towards someone in their suffering, but it's also the physical needs. Pray and look for opportunities to bless others with what God has blessed you with when they are in need. That is an act of mercy. So what's the promise here? I got to move more quickly. What's the promise here? They shall receive God's mercy. Those who show mercy to others will receive God's mercy. Let me be clear. This does not mean that our mercy earns God's mercy. He's not saying if you forgive other people enough, then you will earn forgiveness from God. But rather, I think he's talking about evidence here. He's saying the mercy that we show is the evidence or it demonstrates that we have received God's mercy. It shows that our heart has been changed by the gospel. The clearest proof. The classic example of this is Matthew 18 in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You guys know the story about how there's a king, there's a servant who owes him an astronomical debt, like billions and billions of dollars or something he could never repay. The king forgives him his debt. And in response, he goes out and he finds his other servant who also owes him a debt. Uh, it was pretty significant, but nowhere near compared to what he owed. And did he show mercy on his fellow servant? No, he had him thrown in jail until he could pay the last penny. And the king brings him to him. And this is what he says. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. Let's just pause there. That's how God views unforgiveness. It is a wicked thing to not forgive someone. Let's keep going. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Those are some harsh words from the Lord Jesus, but it shows us how important this is because let me be very clear this morning. If I say something like, God can forgive them, but I won't, that is blasphemy. What you're saying is, I am holier than God. You might meet God's standards for forgiveness, but not mine. That's a higher bar of justice. Rather, when we understand that we have been forgiven a debt we could never repay, then surely we can forgive the debts of others that are much smaller. Those who are merciful toward the sin and suffering of others can rest assured that they will receive God's mercy on that final day. Let's look at this next beatitude together. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The word pure comes from the Old Testament idea of being clean. It is a moral, a spiritual purity. And the heart, 
Again, in scripture, the heart was more than just the organ that pumped blood. It's more than just the emotions even. The heart is the control center of the whole person. We think in our hearts. We feel in our hearts. We choose from our hearts. It is our inner man. And Jesus here is pronouncing a blessing on those who were pure, who were holy, not just in their actions, but in their hearts. The Pharisees, as we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, all they cared about was the outside. All they cared about was appearances. All they cared about was behavior. And Jesus is saying true purity comes from the heart. And God is in this process, and us as believers, in purifying us from the heart, of making us more like Christ, not just in our behaviors, but in the heart. You know, uh, Joanna Burton is our campus admin here at the Gloucester campus, and she shared our staff devotional a couple of weeks ago. And uh, she shared this illustration that I told her I was going to steal, but at least I give her credit for. Uh, and so you guys probably know about the gold refining process, about how when gold is being refined, heat is applied so that all of the impurities will rise to the surface so that then those impurities can be removed and the gold is made more pure. That is what God is in the process of doing to our hearts. Oftentimes, there can be a difficult situation. There can be a trial. The heat can come, so to speak. And we start thinking, God, something must be going wrong. But it's actually, it's all a part of the process, man. God is purifying our hearts. He is refining us. He is removing these impurities so that we will be able to see him more clearly. So let me summarize this. What does it mean to be pure in heart? It means that we're called the comprehensive holiness. Holiness from the inside out, you could call it not just about cleaning up your behavior, cleaning up your act. It's about changing your heart from the inside out. Scripture's concerned about both. Look at James 4, 8 with me. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, so the external behaviors, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. God's after both. He's after both your behavior and your heart. And he wants both to be purified. And here's the interesting thing. I've told you many times in this sermon series, the Beatitudes are a sermon intro. And a good sermon intro points forward to things that are coming in the sermon. That's exactly what this Beatitude is doing. I think this Beatitude is foreshadowing the very next section of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me give you two examples. Where Jesus is going with this sermon is saying holiness starts in the heart, not just the behavior. Matthew 5, 21 Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's saying, okay, you haven't murdered anyone. Congratulations. Have you ever been angry with someone in your heart, sinfully angry? You ever called somebody a fool or an idiot? You ever been sinfully angry or hated someone? Jesus is saying you're guilty of murder of the heart. The very seeds, the roots of murder are present in your heart. Part of what it looks like for us to be purified is to surrender that anger and that bitterness and that hatred to God. I'm not going to re-preach that whole section on forgiveness, but refer back to that. If that's you, if you're harboring anger or bitterness in your heart, that is an impurity that is keeping you from seeing God. Release that to the Lord. Forgive that person. Work towards reconciliation. Don't be impure in heart and so miss out on seeing God because of your pride or because of your lust for revenge. 
What's Jesus' next sermon point on his outline? Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members than your whole body should be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you should lose one of your members than that your whole body should go into hell. The same exact principle as the passage that comes before. Just as hatred is murder of the heart, so lust is adultery of the heart. He's saying sexual sin is more than just what we do physically. It is about what happens in the heart. And we live in a culture that not only tolerates or permits sexual sin, we live in a culture that celebrates and promotes and encourages sexual sin. You can't watch a movie on Netflix or look at a magazine or whatever it might be these days. You can't look at common advertising in a commercial without the very purpose being to incite lust. And as followers of Christ, this is an area where we must reflect the word of God in our lives. I get it. It's not popular today to believe what the Bible teaches about this stuff. But as Christians, we must stand firm here. The Bible teaches very clearly that God has created sex for marriage and that marriage is defined as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. And anything outside of that is sinful. It is contrary to God's design. And so what does this look like for us as followers of Christ to walk in holiness here? Is it all right if I move from preaching to meddling? I mean, I'm going to anyway, but I figure it's polite to ask. Listen. If we are sleeping around outside of marriage, we need to repent. That's a sin. It's contrary to God's will. God's will is that sex be reserved for the covenant relationship of marriage. What about pornography? It's an absolute plague in our world today. Listen, if you're here today and you're looking at pornography, let me encourage you to repent. To repent, to get help, to get accountability. If you're a man, talk to an, uh, another man, a brother in Christ. If you're a woman, talk to another woman, an older sister in Christ. Get accountability, get help. And then look at what Jesus says here. He says, cut out your eye or cut off your hand if necessary. Take radical steps of obedience to get out of situations that lead to temptation, whether that be accountability software on your phone and computer, whatever you have to do, or just get rid of it if you have to. Do whatever it takes to walk in holiness. But here's the deal. Just like the Pharisees, you could have heard that last part of the sermon and said, hey, Nate, well, I'm not sleeping around outside of marriage. I'm not looking at porn, so I must be doing pretty good. But remember, holiness is about the heart. It's about the heart. What about the sinful desires that we cultivate and allow to sit in our hearts? Holiness in this area means replacing the sinful desires of our heart with a greater satisfaction in Christ. Because when it comes to all of these things, by the way, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's greed, whether it's pride, when it comes to sins of the heart, and I've taught on this before, it usually doesn't work very well to try to white knuckle it. Like, all right, stop it. Stop thinking these bad thoughts. Stop it, Nate. That's bad. Stop. Go away. It's like the whole don't think about an elephant thing. And now you're thinking about an elephant. Here's the deal. We have to replace it with a greater satisfaction, a greater delight in Christ. There was a sermon preached in the 19th century called the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what we need. 
We need a new affection that replaces the other. So let's recap. To be pure in heart is to pursue holiness from the inside out. It is to purify ourselves of every sinful heart posture that keeps us from enjoying fellowship with God. And what's the promise? The promise is that when we are pure in heart, they shall see God. They shall see God. The Bible teaches us that no one can see God and live. When Moses asks, Lord, see me, show me your glory, God says, that ain't going to happen because you'll die. But why is that? Why can we not see God now? R.C. Sproul said this, The reason provided for us in Scripture is not a problem with our optic nerves. Our inability to see God is not a deficiency in our eyes, but a deficiency in our hearts. God will not allow himself to be seen by those who are impure. Guys, it is our sin that keeps us from being able to see God. And when we purify our hearts, we are able to see him more for who he is. And I think there is both a now and a not yet dimension to this promise. So in the here and now, when our hearts are purified and sin is removed and we grow in conformity to God's will, we will see him more clearly. That is through the eyes of faith. We will enjoy God more fully. We will know him more. We will love him more. We will enjoy his presence. I cannot think of a better motive for holiness than this. The more pure you are in heart, the more you will enjoy God. And I've been in situations where I've talked with Christians and said, man, once I finally kicked this one sin habit in my life and I repented of it, it's now like my whole spiritual life has come alive again. My prayer life, my time in the word, I'm enjoying it all more now. That's what this text is saying. When we're pure in heart, we can see God more clearly. We can enjoy God more fully. Yeah, think about it like glasses. So my wife, I don't know if you guys do this, she works for an eye doctor. She's worked in the glasses business for like five years now. My eyes are actually not that bad. I can see you guys just fine right now. I have a very low prescription. I wear these because my wife really likes glasses. Uh, she sells glasses, just a confession time, a super low prescription. Um, but here's the deal. So all the time we'll be sitting at the house or something, I'll have my glasses on and she'll look over and be like, Nate, your glasses are filthy. And so she'll take, I don't ever think about it, whatever. She'll take them off and she buys these like cleaning cloths and all this stuff. And she will clean the glasses for me. I actually need them right now. But she came back. I just had to ring one in the next service. So she'll bring them back and I'll put them on. I'll be like, that's what the world's supposed to look like. Like everything looks so much more clearly. Guys, that's sin. Well, not that she cleans my glasses. That's not sin. I mean, that's an illustration for what sin does in our lives sin in our lives is like the gunk on your glasses that keeps you from being able to see the world clearly and keeps you from being able to see God more clearly. That's for the now. What about for the not yet? Revelation 22. This is eternity. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Don't miss this. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When all the impurities have been forever removed and we are glorified in the presence of God, we're finally going to see him for who he is. So in closing this morning, as I've done the last two weeks, so I want to close this morning by showing us how Jesus is the ultimate example of these things. Church, Jesus was pure in heart. 
Jesus was sinless. We know that, but it wasn't just about the behavior. I want you to think about this. Do you realize that Jesus perfectly, moment by moment, trusted in the will of his heavenly father? Do you realize that Jesus never once in his whole life had a lustful thought, had a greedy thought, had a bitter thought? Jesus was perfect. He was pure in heart. And as a result, he could see God more clearly than we ever could. But wasn't Jesus also the ultimate example of mercy? Do you even need me to unpack this one? Jesus showed mercy on those who were suffering. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed the hungry. Jesus certainly showed mercy to us in our sin, right? Even on the cross, Father, forgive them. Jesus is the ultimate example of being merciful. And I'd like to leave with one final thought and invite the band to come back with this. I want you to consider this as we talked a lot about mercy today. Jesus Christ is more willing to show mercy than you are to receive it. I'll repeat that. Jesus Christ is more willing to show mercy than you are to receive it. Because if you're like me, and it's the 10,000th time that you've messed up, and that's probably on the lower end, we come back again and we think he's got to be tired of this by now. He's got to be fed up by now. He's got to be sick of showing me mercy. Or maybe it's just his job. It's what he does, but he doesn't delight in it. There is nothing that brings more joy to the heart of our Savior than forgiving you, than showing you mercy. Listen to this illustration. It comes from one of my favorite books, Gentle and Lowly by Dan Ortland. He said, a compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He had his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics were prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. But finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and for healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers, but his own family? So with us and so with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Jesus Christ is more willing to give mercy than we are to receive it. If you're here this morning and you've never received the mercy of God in Christ leading to salvation, and don't leave today without talking to someone. I'm going to invite our prayer team members to come now. They're available if you have a prayer need or if you'd like to talk about a relationship with Christ. Maybe you're convicted of a sin that the Lord has been convicting you of that you've been struggling with. Man, release that to the Lord. Ask for forgiveness and know that Jesus is ready and eager and excited to forgive and to heal and to cleanse. Maybe there's someone that you need to forgive and you know what you have to do this week. Pray and ask God for the strength to help you remember the gospel and show mercy as you have been shown mercy. Let's close in prayer. 
Oh, Father, we love you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us. I pray that as we go from this place, you would empower us to be an accurate reflection of you, that we would be pure in heart and merciful, just as you are, Jesus. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen.